If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn in it or turn it on to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 11 and kind of work our way through the chapter. If you're using one of the pew Bibles, you can turn to page 1022 and you're going to be right where you need to be. As I was preparing for today, a quote that I had shared, I think a couple of years ago, maybe two or three years ago, in, in one of the sermons kind of re-popped to mind. The, the quote comes from a guy by the name of Andrew Fletcher, who was a Scottish political thinker in the 1700s, I believe, and he said these words, give me the making of the songs of a nation and I care not who writes its laws. Now, his point is music is an incredibly powerful thing, and the reason that popped into mind is as I was preparing this week and realized, though a lot of my family is very musical, that somehow is nowhere near me, but even though I'm not the musical one, as I was preparing this week, songs from the 1980s just seemed to keep popping up in my head. So as I started going through 1 John, I was in kind of in verse 11, and it's very obvious that the theme of love is there. And so I started to ask myself the question, what does love have to do with confidence? And it's almost as I'm asking myself that question, I began to hear the voice of Tina Turner in my head singing... What's love got to do with it? What's love but a secondhand emotion? Now, at that point, I was so thankful that those were the only words of the song that I knew. But I thought, why is that song popping up in my head? And so I Googled the lyrics and went, what she's talking about and what John are talking about are two different things. But it still raised the question in my head, why is John talking about love? Why does love lead to confidence? And I'm thinking, this song, The Power of Music, why is he doing this? Well, maybe the way to get started is to say, why talk about love? Let's just jump into the text, chapter 3, verse 11, John writing this, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Into the context of wanting followers of the Lord Jesus to be confident in their relationships with God, John says, hey, loving one another, he kind of reminds us, loving one another is a part of the gospel message. Now, the words in verse 11, from the beginning, John has used this phrase, I think this might be the fourth or fifth time he's kind of used the phrase, and his whole idea is, hey, let's go back to when you first heard the gospel. Now, if you're going to tie hearing the gospel to, to the message of love, we need to realize that the gospel, in that sense, starts with God's love for us. Very familiar verse in the Bible, John chapter 3, verse 16 says, the, the Lord Jesus was given. Well, why was the Lord Jesus given? Because the verse starts out, for God so loved the world. God's love. The story of the gospel really is a love-initiated story in which God says, hey, I want you to be reconciled to me. I want you to be in a relationship with me. And he, he kind of lays it out and says, hey, I want you to know me. I want us to be together. And so he shares this love. And the idea of his love story is if you and I would respond to his overture of love to us, if we'd turn from sin to God and trust the Lord Jesus as our Savior, then that love that God has shared with us all of a sudden becomes resident in our lives. 
And what the gospel is really calling to is when you and I receive God's love and that love begins to fill our lives and mark our lives, that then the joy of our heart, the desire of our heart is we'd want to love God. We'd want to respond to God by loving Him back. And the Bible will tell us, 1 John will tell us again and again and again, one of the best ways that you and I express our love to God is by doing what verse 11 says, and that is that we love each other, that we love one another. John says a huge confirmation of the gospel being in our lives, that we've trusted Christ, that we belong to Him, is all of a sudden we start to love others. Now, I don't have a song at this point. There will be more songs. But I got here and I'm like, hang on a second, John. The gospel can impact us in a lot of ways. Why is it that you're focused on love? Because as we go through 1 John, and we've been going through 1 John again and again and again, he's going to bring up love. He's going to bring up love and say, why? Why is he so focused on love? Why is that the issue? Well, in verses 12 to 15, I think he's going to give us two reasons why he's so focused on love, why love is so critical, okay? Reason number one, why is John so glued to this love thing? Why does he say that's important? Reason number one is because of the reality of envy. John talks about love because envy is a huge reality in all of life. Look at verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. John says, hey, let me unpack why I talk about love by drawing attention to Cain. Now, for reasons I don't understand, I don't think I get this, but in the first century, as John was writing 1 John, the story of Cain and Abel from Genesis chapter 4 was incredibly popular. A whole lot of people wanted to know about Cain. Now, I realize probably not all of us go to the library and ask the librarian here in Sioux City, hey, do you have the works of Philo? But if you were to ask for the works of Philo, Philo, who was a Jewish contemporary of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John writing in that same area in the first century, he was so into Cain that he wrote four volumes, four works about Cain. For whatever reason, Cain and his story became incredibly well-known. And so John says, hey, let's talk about love from the perspective of Cain. The story of Genesis 4 was well-known. It was a really simple story, really. I mean, the, the guts of the story is Cain killed his brother. Now, when you know that, you kind of say, well, why? Why did he kill his brother? Why did he do that? Now, John literally asks the question, why did he murder him? Now, before he even gets to ask the question, though, there's a little bit in verse 12 in the first part. I think we need to see why did John murder him? Well, it says that Cain was of the evil one. Most likely what John means by that is that Cain was so influenced or shaped in his life by the evil one that Satan in that sense, the evil one was impacting Cain's behavior. Now, part of the reason I want to point that out is simply this. The evil one is against us loving one another. One of the realities of life is you and I truly, really are in a spiritual battle. And if we begin to experience tension and friction in our relationships, we're batting heads. That's an indicator there's something going on. It's not only us. It may be us, but there's another factor. The evil one's against us. 
More directly, though, John says, hey, there's even more than that. There is that reality. But why did he murder him? Well, because Abel was righteous. Cain wasn't. In saying that, John seems to be suggesting that there was this tension between Cain and Abel. The Bible gives us no sense that Abel had an issue, but Cain did. It's kind of seeming to say that Cain was envious of Abel. He was jealous of Abel. And the implied thought seems to be that because he was envious, because he was jealous, all of a sudden he began to hate his brother. And out of that hatred then he took his life. He removed it. He just ended it. Then verse 13 says these words. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Why would John, in the context of talking about love, bring up envy? Well, if the first two brothers, if the first two brothers had an issue of envy entering their lives, of hatred becoming a part of life, do you and I really think we can be immune to it? Do you and I really think it may not be an issue in our lives? See, part of the challenge of life is I think it's very easy for us to be envious of one another. For us to think that person's got that and I don't and we envy them. Relational friction is in part a product, a part an expression of the fact there's an evil one. It's also part of a product. It's also a picture of the fact you and I struggle with envy. And envy must be dealt with somehow which is really why the second reason. John talks about love so much because envy is a reality, but there's a second reason, because the gospel brings love. Part of the changing impact of the gospel is because it will address the issue of envy. Look at verses 14 and 15. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love his brothers. We love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Okay, zoom in on, on verse 14 with me. Okay, in, in verse 14, I think it's very clear that John believes, just like the apostle Paul believed and expressed in, in Ephesians chapter 2, John believes that without the Lord Jesus... Okay, if I don't have a connection, if I don't have a vital relationship with the Lord Jesus, I'm spiritually dead. But the incredible good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus is even though I may be dead, He makes us alive. When we trust the Lord Jesus, we are made alive. And John's concern is for us to know how can we be confident that we're alive. See, most of us probably aren't fully aware without Christ that we're spiritually dead. One of the things I've noticed when I talk with people about the Lord Jesus and I kind of infer to them because the Bible infers. The Bible doesn't infer. It says it pretty directly in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We don't like to be told we're dead. So if I'm not sure I'm dead and I'm not aware of that, how can I really be sure I'm alive? Well, John says, here's how you can be sure you're alive. Here's how you can be confident you're alive. Because you begin to love people. See, in making us alive, the gospel also transforms us so that we can live beyond envy, 
so that envy doesn't have to be this ruling force in our lives. The gospel is going to impact us. He talks about love because the love of God that comes to us when we trust Christ is a love that can grow in us and giving us a heart for other people, giving us a concern for them. It can move us from hate to love. Love's an issue to John because the infusing of God's love in our lives is really meant to change us. It's really meant to impact us so that the expression of our lives becomes, I've received this love, now I can share it. And John says, as you begin to see the gospel expressing love from you to other people, what a huge catalyst. What a huge confidence marker. I see there's a change. One of the things I wish wasn't true, but I think is true, is that it's really natural for us to walk the path of Cain. It is really easy for us to be envious. We just seem to go there. Somebody has something, we want it, we don't have it, we're envious. But the incredible good news of the gospel is that God wants us to be conformed to the image of Christ. Jesus was somebody who loved other people. And the amazing thing is, is this love that God puts in our lives can literally supernaturally transform us so that we now can love others. It's pretty natural for us to envy, but the love of God in our lives can get us past envy and move us to where we really love another person. You know, I finished verses 12 to 15. I thought, okay, I think this is what John is saying. Good. But how is it that verses 16 to 18 connect? How do they build off of that? As I was trying to ponder that, kind of working at things, reading some things, looking at it, saying, okay, God, how does this connect? The voice in my head turned from Tina Turner, 1984 song, to Foreigner's 1984 song. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. Like 1,900 years after John had written these words, it's like foreigners saying to me, hey, Lloyd, you need to ask, what does love look like? Have somebody show you. Well, look at the beginning of verse 16. Verse 16 begins these words, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Okay, John must have been anticipating Foreigner writing that song because he says, hey, if you want to know what love is, all you need to do is to look at what Jesus did for us. You need to look at the fact that Jesus gave his life for us. Now, to, to broaden that out to a definition, okay, to kind of say what does it mean, it seems to mean that what love is, as John's writing about love here, he's saying love is about sacrificing for the benefit of another, okay? If I'm going to say I love somebody, it's sacrificing for the benefit of the, another. Think about it. The Lord Jesus died on the cross. Why? To benefit us. So that we could it be possible for us to go from being dead to alive. He did that for our benefit, for our good. And John seems to be saying, hey, you want to know what love is? It's going to be about you doing something, sacrificing for the good of another. That's loving another person. Now to John, to make it very clear, to John, love isn't just something to be defined. 
You know, give me a definition so if it comes up on an ACT test in my life or it comes up in a job interview or it comes up at some point, I can say, well, this is love. No, to John, if that is the definition of love, that means there's a huge implication on us right now immediately. Look at all of verse 16. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John is telling us when we receive God's love, okay, when we trust the Lord Jesus as our Savior and God's love now is in my life, we also receive a calling. We are to be people who sacrifice for the benefit of another. That is to be a part of the story of my life. The word translated ought in verse 16, you look on the screen, look in your Bible, that word is a very strong word. You could actually translate that word must, okay? We must lay down our lives. We must sacrifice to love others. Sean said earlier, some of these things aren't easy and all of a sudden we're being told we must lay down our lives. What exactly does John mean by that? What does he mean? We must lay down our lives. What does that look like? What is the element of that? What does it mean I've got to sacrifice? Well, look at verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? I believe at this point John is trying to be incredibly practical. He says, here's what laying down your life, here's what sacrificing can look like. Realize none of us are ever going to be hung on a cross to die for the sins of the world. That's unique to Jesus. But in terms of us sacrificing, it can be this, taking resources, deploying resources. God gives us things. We're called then to deploy them, not for our benefit, but for someone else's benefit to meet a need in their life. He's saying, I want you to take what you've been given and share it. Don't live life with hands clenched. Don't hoard it. Don't harden your heart. You and I, our calling of life is to take what we've been given and to share it. Look at the end of verse 17. I think at the end of verse 17, in that phrase, God's love abides in him. John's wanting us to kind of think about, here's how life really should go, okay? We receive God's love. We trust Christ, so we receive God's love. And we're now to live in that love. We're to abide in that love. That love is to abide in us. And as that happens, that's to begin to influence us and shape us to where we are actively sharing that love. We're taking what we have been given and we're to share it with others. Look at verse 18. John continues to kind of wrap this sort of paragraph up. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I think John wants us to know, he's sort of clarifying it, love isn't just about us saying something. Love is, involves us doing something. Love is about us taking some step in some way that is a genuine step and expression of love. 
The, the words translated at the end of verse 18, in truth, is most likely John's way of saying genuine. You don't just love. You don't say you love. No, it's a genuine thing. It's not a fake facade thing. It's, it's real. It's, it's true. Now, to connect this in, 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 in this idea to something, the elder sent out a, a, an email on Tuesday to the, to the congregation. Kind of connect to that just for a second. In verses 16, 17, and 18, John's really calling us to serve. He's calling us to live out, to fulfill the calling of Ephesians 2, 10 in our lives, to walk in the good works God has prepared in advance for us to do. He's calling us to to do that. To use an expression we've used for the last almost two months now, this idea of CBC serves, it's saying embrace that, do that. That's what I'm calling you to do. That's what God is calling us to do. We need to do that love indeed and in truth, genuinely doing that. Now I want to pause here for a minute. Normally in a sermon we're trying to talk to everybody, but just for a couple of minutes, I want to zoom in and just talk directly to those of you that have had some significant health issues those kinds of health issues that have impacted your physical ability to to do some things. Because what I want to do is is I've reflected back on conversations I've had with some of you and conversations I've had with other people, not necessarily here geographically, but very similar life situations. I I feel like I need to, to say two things. One, I need to offer you what I think is a direct application because I think I've ignored that. But before I can really get to that direct application, I need to apologize to you. In going through these verses, I've realized how many times when I've said things about, hey, we all need to serve, that the only examples that I give when I say, hey, we all need to serve, are things that you kind of need to be physically in good health to be able to go and do. You know, I've said sometimes, hey, you need to go serve in the nursery. You need to get on the ground and play with kids. Well, for some of you, if you get on the ground, you're never going to get back off the ground. And I realized in a variety of ways this week, and I ask you to forgive me, that I have said things and I have used examples that have excluded you, kind of said, well, that's for everybody else but you. And though I never in one sense intended to demean you, I was demeaning you and I stand here today to ask you to forgive me. That has been wrong. Because although these verses do have a physical sense about them, us doing things, I think the direct application for someone who's maybe in a compromised health situation is that if you and I, if we're in that situation, and I realize right now I'm not there, But I also realize I did some things this week that reminded me that I'm not 20 years old anymore. That if you and I were in a compromised state, if we're praying for the ministry of Central, if we're praying for the people of Central, and we're encouraging those who are able to do some of those physical things, that might actually be, I believe, a good work that God has called you to in the words of Ephesians 2.10 to do in advance. I was reminded this week because of that 
Carrie's grandfather passed away five days before I sent the first, my first email of Central had contacted us and had sent us all this information, all these questions we had to answer. Five days before I sent that back, Carrie's grandfather died. And the Sunday, I sent that email to you on a Monday. That Sunday I preached, and that was the very first time in my life I had ever preached where Carrie's grandfather was not on earth praying for me. That is a huge gift that you can give to people. And I want to affirm that. I want to say that as clearly as I can. We as a congregation need you to pray. And we need your encouragement. And you might say, well, that's all you can do. We need it. And I apologize again that I have failed to express in a public platform how much we need that. And I know a lot of you are already doing it. And I want to affirm that. Go back with me, please, to John, 1 John 3. Continue on. That's an application for them. But another question that comes up for me was, how is it that this love leads to confidence? I mean, John is saying if you love and do all those things, up goes your confidence. But how does that work? Well, look at verse 19, the first part of verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. Okay? John's saying if we love in a way that is the picture of verses 16 to 18, not the negative view of it, but the positive expression of it, John's saying that's another affirmation. We belong to the truth. And when John thinks about truth, he's not thinking about a concept. He's really thinking about a person. We belong to Jesus. He's saying that's true of us. That loving like that, again, there's that confidence connection again. But let me ask two what I would call critical application questions at this point. Questions that I think verse 17 raises, verse 16 kind of raises, verse 18 brings it back around. But here's the questions, two questions. One would be this. Is it easy for you to love like verses 16 to 18 say? In essence, we're kind of asking, do you hoard sometimes? The second question, is it tricky sometimes to figure out how to love like that? Now, here's my assumption. I think for many of us, some of us at different times, it can be hard to love like those verses say, to take what we've been given and share it. And I think sometimes in our world where people manipulate and do all those things, it gets kind of tricky. Is that a real need? Should I really be helping? It gets tricky and it gets confusing. Here's the thing. I believe John knows that it's tricky for us. I believe that John knows that it's hard for us to do this sometimes. And so he writes and is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write verse 19 and 20 to actually help us deal with that. Okay, so I want you to read with me all of verse 19 and all of verse 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Okay, the second part of verse 19 is not the simplest thing to translate from Greek it was originally written into in English. Now the challenge is because of the way it writes grammatically, however you understand the second half of verse 19, how it's translated is going to impact how you understand verse 20, which means if this is hard to translate, how do I understand what verses 19 and 20 are really trying to say? 
Quick observation. Look at the word reassure in verse 19. Everywhere else that Greek word is used in the New Testament, it's either translated as persuade or convince. Everywhere else. This is the only place where it's not. And if you look at most English translations, and and I think every English translation I looked at had some word that looked like reassure or rest, something like that. But commentators have said, hang on a second, that's not maybe the best way to translate that word. Maybe the better way to translate the second part of verse 19 is to say something like, we persuade our hearts before Him. Grammatically, that is sort of what it seems to say. Well, why would John say that? Why would John say we need to persuade our hearts before God? Well, how does verse 20 start? Verse 20 starts by saying we talk about our hearts condemning us. What I'm suggesting is John is telling us, hey, there's a good chance that you and I might feel a pull in our hearts, and our hearts, we're not talking about cardiac muscle, we're talking about our inner life, that we may have a pull in our inner life that doesn't align with God's love. And John's saying, hey, I know that you might feel this pull. God's saying, love other people, and you might feel a pull to do anything but that. And John says, the way you deal with that pull is you need to persuade your heart before God. Well, why would I do that? I mean, to go against my heart doesn't necessarily sound healthy. It doesn't necessarily sound right. So much of our our cultural impulses and desire in our culture is, hey, follow your heart. Trust your gut. Now, I'm not going to do a survey, but I'm going to guess a lot of us have said those words. Trust your heart. You know, trust your gut. Go with it. And so for us to be told to go against our hearts, everything within me says go do this. Why would I go against it? Look at the end of verse 20. John is reminding us that God, the one who's calling us to love one another, is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. When God is calling us to love, he's directing us out of a place of knowing the best. Now, folks, our hearts are important. Our inner life is significant. But it doesn't know best. God does. And John's saying if we will align ourselves with God, if we'll align ourselves with God's will, that's the best thing for our lives. But that still creates a rub point for us. I think in our culture that we're a part of that impacts us We in our world have a pretty high value of personal autonomy, of me being able to do what I want to do. And I've also noticed that we really don't like the idea of submission. The problem is if you're going to persuade your heart before God, you're saying no to personal autonomy and yes to submission. We'd much rather say yes to personal autonomy and no to submission. God's calling us to do the reverse. Why would I do that? Now, please notice, verse 20 is true. God's greater than your heart. 
God knows all. John could have left it right there and said, that's it. You do what God says. But notice he adds to it. Look at verse 21. Beloved, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God. John says, if we move away from doing what my heart says, if I align myself with God, all of a sudden I'm living at the sphere of confidence. And if you're living at the address, like if your address is one confidence street, that's a huge place to live. Look at what verse 22 says, kind of building off of that. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Verse 22 is talking about being able to pray and being able to to pray with confidence because I'm aligned with Him. I'm doing what He says. I'm aligning my life with the will of God. I'm doing what God desires. I'm taking the love He has given me and I'm sharing it with others and now my life, I'm living in the context. I'm living in the sphere. Since it's a hot day, I'm living in a cool pool of confidence. Why would I want to be anywhere else? That's a gift from God to us. Now, as I came to the very last verses, I went from songs from 1984 to 1985, and all of a sudden I could hear Huey Lewis singing, The Power of Love. Again, not the same kind of love, but there's a huge statement there, isn't there? Love can do amazing things. God's love does this incredible stuff. Sometimes, though, as verse 22 said, there's commandments. And we we aren't always drawn to commandments. How is it that love and commandments, how can those go together? Because, see, love is nice. Commandments seems hard, mean. How do these come together? How does John wrap this up? What is it that God's commanding? Well, look at verses 23 and 24 with me. This power of love God has. And this is His commandment. Okay, what are His commandments? Well, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in Him and God in Him, and by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Let me wrap this up quickly. Three commands that are all entangled in love. Command number one is that we believe in the Lord Jesus. Now, a longer way to say believe in the Lord Jesus would be to say receive God's love and allow that love to begin transforming you. Receive God's powerful love that was given to us by the sacrifice of Jesus and let that love then transform you because it is incredibly powerful. Command number two, really simple. Share God's powerful love. Again, it's a love all about it. Receive that love, now share it. And the third command, which I'm probably playing a little bit with language to get it to be a command, but the third command would be this. Be confident with God's helper. 
have a confidence in your life because of God's helper. Verse 24 reminds us that when we obey God, we're abiding with Him. We're living our life connected to Him. And as we talked about last week, abiding, being in that connection relationship with God, also is something that gives us confidence. Verse 24 is kind of reminding us of that. It's highlighting that, but it's going beyond that. God says, hey, when you trust my Son as your Savior, I send the Holy Spirit to be a part of your life and a huge reason why I send him into your life is to increase your confidence, to strengthen it, to remind you, to renew you, to remind you in critical moments you belong to the Almighty God. He's your Savior. When you and I receive God's powerful, sacrificial love, we can be confident. Love, to say to Tina Turner, what's love got to do with it? Love has everything to do with being confident. When you and I receive the love of God, the sacrificial, the powerful love of God, it does a work in us that brings us literally to the place of confidence. Please, receive God's powerful love. Abide in it. Let it shape the outworking of your life to move you past envy, to be transformed by it so that we love one another so that we can enjoy the confidence God desires for each of us to have. Let's pray.